Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Elf, the 2003 film written by David Berenbaum and directed by John Favreau. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Pittner. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> and Alex Cayetos. Hi. Uh, okay, so <laughs> hi. hi. <laughs> it came out way like drier than I expected. It's perfect. It's great. Yeah, we're, we're doing it. So it brings Brian down. Yeah. <laughs> you're the you're the father figure to the elf. Yeah, I'm the James uh, Con. You're James yeah. Con. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, so before we dive into elf, a couple quick things. Uh, so first of all, our most recent patron exclusive is up over on Patreon on Wakanda Forever. So check that out. Our patron exclusive for this month will be coming out soon on Avatar: The Way of Water. We're gonna see it. We're gonna talk about it, and you can Hell listen yeah. to it. Uh, and our first episode of next year, our next episode will be on Glass Onion, aka Knives Out 2. Uh, so lots of fun stuff going on there. And as it's the end of the year, what a year it has been. So looking at our Spotify wrapped stats was kind of a trip. Uh, uh -huh. We apparently created 2,732 minutes of content this year. So that's a lot of us talking. Jesus. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently some people like it because we were the top podcast for 1,400 fans and then the top 10 podcasts for 10,000 fans across 106 countries. Uh, it's it's insane. Um, so thank you to all of our listeners for listening and uh, being amazing. And uh, over on Patreon, I also was looking at the numbers there and we have 52 patron exclusive episodes waiting over on our Patreon, which you can get for just $2 a month if you head over to Patreon. And when you become a patron, you get 20% off our Beyond the Screenplay merch, which we also now have. It has been quite a busy year. There's shirts and notebooks and mugs and tote bags. And tote bags. You always forget the tote bags. Yes. I mean, <laughs> Trisha and I want the tote bags. <laughs> Organic tote bags. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all of those things are, are over there. So anyway, it's been a crazy year. Thank you, everyone. It has been awesome. And now we're going to talk about Elf. I had never seen Elf. 
but I'd always heard <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, oh my God, Elf, it's so good. No, really, it's good. No, it's like, it's a good movie, you guys. Uh, and so even though when the idea of doing Elf was brought up, I was a little bit like, uh, okay. I was like, well, John Favreau, everyone says it's great. It's this really good movie. I'll watch it. And I enjoyed myself. You know, I like you know, 2003 era Will Ferrell was yeah. tickled me to no end when that was the present day. And it was fun to kind of like relive that like in 2003, you can make a movie that was 80 percent Will Ferrell just being Will Ferrell and like being wacky and reacting and yelling about things. It has some very nice heart moments. It checks all the Christmas joy boxes and believing in the spirit of Christmas. I forgot Zoe Deschanel was in it. She sings, of course she does. Uh, so <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> yep, multiple yeah. times. She's the reason Christmas is saved, kind of. And anyway, <laughs> so overall, it was like a fun way to spend 90 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, if we want to get into screenwriting things, I think there are definitely some lessons that can be extracted from this. But I want to hear from you guys. Brian, I want to start with you. Like, what is your relationship with Elf? And why are we here? <laughs> Um, we're not here because of me entirely. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love this movie. I think it's great. Um, I saw it roughly when it came out and have seen it many times since it's just one of those like elf and love actually, uh, are basically like my watch pretty much every Christmas movies. For me, the thing that, the thing that just sort of personally reached out and kind of touched me was, um, the, the callbacks, the, like the sort of the throwbackness of this movie. So you have the the very obvious Rankin Bass um, inspiration to the point where Rankin Bass uh, was almost sued them uh, when they were like, "Wait, what are you doing?" Um, there was they were going to have to make Buddy's costume blue instead of green, and they were going to have to reshoot everything. So fortunately, none of that happened. But um, but I definitely had watched some of those. Um, arctic puffin and all the you know everything in the north pole right just feels like so there's like a warmth and like a familiarity and a a nostalgia to it right um and but then also for me personally i grew up watching a lot of nick at night and the old sitcoms from the 60s and 70s so ed asner and bob newhart i think that was Mm -hmm. the thing that for me was just like oh man like this because you know i feel like those things combined kind of give this movie a little bit of a timeless feel, which is what John Favreau was looking for, where it wasn't just like, what are the like, who is the like funny old guy who's in every movie right now in 2003, right? Like we're going to put that guy in, right? And like trying to get every, every sort of obvious comedy choice out there. And then Will Ferrell was a huge gamble. They they definitely were not. Um, the studio was like, what the SNL guy? Like where you, you want him to be the lead of a movie. Um, so I think there was just sort of, there's a version of this movie that is done in kind of an obvious way. And all of the things about this movie that are done either with care or that feel like they're a little out of left field. I think those things are what kind of came together for, for me to just feel like this was actually like a really good movie that I really loved rather than just kind of an okay, just an okay comedy that happened to be a Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, like the throwbackiness was really fun. Surprise. Bob Newhart was a joy. And like, (laughs) I feel like I remember watching Nick at night and like the Bob Newhart show and all those things and being like, is this the funniest man 
alive. Like I think it might be. Uh, so I was, yeah, it was very fun to see him and his perfectly cast as you know the the adoptive father of of Elf. Papa Elf. Um, Papa, Papa Elf. Elf. Yeah. Yes. yes. His official name. <laughs> awesome. Okay, Trisha. What about you? I really, really love this movie. I don't watch it every single year, maybe, but I watch it. I don't know fairly often, but it, it took a while to sell me on the idea. Like I definitely didn't see it in 2003. Um, and so like by the time I got around to it, I was like, Will Ferrell was more of like a thing and, you know, had kind of made his whole, I mean, he was already like this SNL kind of thing, but like, you know, the gross out comedy, like R rated comedies of the time, um, and I just associated with him with something kind of like adult, like sort of mean spirited comedy. Um, and I saw the poster. I remember like seeing the poster in a movie theater in 2003 and seeing the costume, you know, and like, you know, he's like really tall and funny and wearing tights. And like, I assume there's going to be lots of like jokes and that are just <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I was just like, I think this thing is is going to be like cynical and like, there's going to be jokes for adults that are like disguised in the kids in a kid's movie kind of thing. Um, and I was just not, I don't know. Like I, I didn't know how it could be sincere and Oh, how wrong I was and Oh, how sincere it is. And I think that's the thing that really like always strikes me about it. You know, so much of it is just the purity of Will Ferrell's performance and the writing of the character. And there just isn't like a cynical bone in this movie's body. And there are a few like dumb little gross out jokes where he's like eating gum off the subway mm -hmm. and like pukes in a trash can because he's been spinning around and like, yeah, all the, all the like, yeah, the spaghetti with syrup and stuff like that. And like, there are those dumb sort of toilet humor things but they don't feel mean. Like they feel almost childlike in the way that they're executed rather than like they're trying to be edgy or something. And so I, I don't know. I just really love the spirit of this movie and like watching it again this time this year, I, I was bumped on some of the same things that I've always been like, eh, that's kind of, eh, I don't know if that works like really from a story perspective or whatever. Um, but I don't care. Like, I don't know. It's there's some there's a reason why the dialogue is like really iconic and most of it's in the delivery. Uh, but most of it is just the sincerity of the writing and how excited everybody is. It just seems like it's one of those movies where people, the people who made it were having so much fun. Like you get that sense that everybody was having a good time on the set and believed in what they were doing. And I just love that. Like that's the spirit of Christmas or whatever. Um, this movie doesn't seem actually concerned about being cool. It seems like it actually is, is a loving homage to classic Christmas movies. It's knowing it's not that it doesn't know that it's an homage or that, you know, mm -hmm. it's like not trying to be a parody in some ways, but it's just, it's just, like I said, it's so, it's so earnest and, uh, lovely. So, Anyway, it's a great movie. I'm excited. Yeah, I think I was struck by, I think after hearing people uh, celebrate it for so long, I assumed like, well, well, it must be kind of, you know, 
pro Christmas spirit in general, but I think I was <laughs> expecting it to be more performative. And like you're saying, I think it is genuinely trying to capture and create that kind of spirit of Christmasness. So I did like appreciate and respect that, that it wasn't just a, we're going to go out and say these words and then we're going to cash our Christmas check with this movie. It was right. like the <laughs> love was put into it. And I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. Cool. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I, I don't know what I expected from this movie because I also had not seen it. And I think I also had the same reaction you did, Trisha, to the poster back in 2003 of just like, I don't want to do that. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no interest here. No. Um, but yeah, I, I was struck like I was I was I had some like walls up and resistance at first. And then just I kind of sank into the tone of that opening and the North Pole stuff with the just. It, it, it looks like a diorama and it looks like yeah, those the old stop motion animation, you know, Rudolph stuff. And I was like, oh, there's, there's something there's a tone being hit here that is both kid friendly and adult friendly. It, like mm -hmm. like something really specific that isn't just, yeah, like super cynical, but also isn't just for kids. It, it, it John Favreau like hit on something very specific that I was really enjoying and I was actually like laughing. And then, you know, when you get to New York City, I think the whole like, first half of the movie really won me over because they were totally like milking the premise as as much as they could you know is both the like you know the the person who's basically still a kid who has never seen the world so everything is amazing and the best coffee in the world must be the best coffee in the world <laughs> uh but also like like milking the like really awkward insane situations that he finds himself in and you know, just being a large man in that costume in various environments, they, they really like made the most out of it. And I think where the movie kind of petered off for me was actually in the second half when like we'd gone past all the antics of him coming into the new world. And now it did feel kind of like we had to check off the check boxes of like heartwarming Christmas movie where like the transformation of the Scrooge must happen by X point. And I don't know that the movie like earned it in the way that some other you know, like a, you know, a Christmas Carol. I, like, I feel like I that, that earns Scrooge's transformation in a way that I didn't really feel that the father figure, like, was believably would have suddenly quit his job or whatever. So I think that kept it from being a perfect Christmas movie in my mind. It didn't quite earn the Christmas payoff, but I was surprised by how much I was laughing, how much I was just really enjoying it, and how, how, how perfect a vessel it was for Will Ferrell, you know, cause it just, oh, yeah. you like, you need a very specific actor who can channel a very specific energy for this character. And he was a perfect match. So yeah, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. And, uh, I, I laughed a lot. I had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I had kind of a similar thing where the, the first half is a lot of fun and games. The second half does start to feel like it it's like, oh, right, we have to plot now. And so, like, things happen. But it was also interesting, you, you mentioned this earlier, Trisha, uh, maybe Brian, too, of, like, that this movie is aware of Christmas movies. Like, it was more meta or reliant, uh, reliant, but, yeah, aware of previous Christmas movies and kind of the arc of a Christmas movie and, with, you know, with these references. And so it was this kind of interesting thing where, and the cynical half of my brain was like, oh, they're getting away with this because they know that we've seen a Christmas movie where this was earned. And so as long as you can hit those beats, right. we're like, oh, OK, well, I know that that's supposed to happen, so that's fine. Uh, but also because it was aware of that, it was treating that with love. And so somehow it was walking this 
weird, fascinating line where I'm like, this isn't on paper, this should not be working, but on the screen, it's working more than it should be. And I don't know how to feel about that. Uh, <laughs> so I think that is interesting, an interesting aspect of this film, especially in the second half. Yeah. Yeah. I was noticing this time around how sort of quickly they go through the sort of the, basically you have the Jovi arc, the Michael arc and the Walter arc, right? And Walter is obviously the big one, but it's like, it's, it almost does like just the rule of three. It's like, we just need like three scenes with each of these characters to sort of pay it off by the end. And I, I agree with what you're saying, Alex, like if this were a perfect movie, we'd probably, it would probably feel more earned by the end. But what I also liked sort of realizing how little actual screen time was spent on each of those stories, especially the Jovi and Michael stories, um, specifically Jovi kind of her character arc, not Joey, Jovi as the love interest, but as the sort of someone who is afraid to sing in front of people to someone who can sing in front of people um, was just <laughs> what it did for the, the pacing. Um, just the, the pacing of like, boom, 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 boom. You know, we're either having fun over here or now we've got like the Michael sequence and like over the course of this sequence, we're going to be kind of off into the new thing. A character has changed. Something has changed. And now we're, now we're, we have like, the runway to move on to the next thing. So I think that it's, yeah, it is walking that line, like you were saying, Michael, but I did appreciate that, like what they were sacrificing for more development, they were gaining and just like, man, the movie's over. Like, I'm just, I'm just like, I could watch this again right now, you know? And I think like there's something to be said for a movie that just kind of chugs along at that kind of speed where you feel, you don't feel like, oh, right, we have to sit through this, 10 minute thing that's boring to get to the next thing. Cause this movie just has that kind of like, it has like a life and energy to it. Yeah. And to your point, I think one of the smart things that the movie does is have that many subplots, right? Like, mm -hmm. because we don't have to like make any one of them like too messy or spend too much time on it in a way that would cause us to like overthink it. <laughs> so like they do spend time, you know, most of the time on the Walter subplot and that's where the the time should be spent. Um, although I, I, would, I do want to spend more time talking about how that actual arc works um, or plays out. But the Jovi and Michael subplots, making sure that those are in there and present, like what you're saying, Brian, is exactly right. It it creates this like momentum. So you have these like fun little sequences where, you know, he's helping Michael fight off the bullies with the snowballs. And then like, then there's this great little montage where he and Michael are running around gimbals and jumping on mattresses. And then they like go see Jovi and it, you know, there are these great little, and, and so many of them are done in almost like tiny sequences or tiny montages um, where it just feels like the movie's like, you know, moving along here in the second half. And the same thing with Jovi, you know, you have that wonderful montage on their date um, and it just like zips by basically. And you don't need to worry about how anything is actually playing out. When they, when they kissed in the ice skating rink this time around, I was like, okay, like, okay. Like it's right. very quick yeah. and not a lot is made of it because the romantic subplot is not the primary, you know, plot. It's like the it's the C plot or even the D plot of the movie. Um, if you want to think about like what's happening with Santa and the North Pole as being like probably the B plot or whatever. <laughs> so like the, the Jovi plot is way down there. And so like when they kiss in the ice skating rink, you're just like, sure. Um, but like it's it's OK because the movie is just moving along so quickly. 
um, and the images that it's offering you create this lovely sort of like tone and this sort of, I was going to say collage, but let's go with wreath, <laughs> this lovely sort of like wreath of an idea um, without necessarily needing to build real structure underneath of it. But it just kind of leaves you with this impression of a plot that has happened rather than like <laughs> the real work of a plot, which is fine, which is actually fine. I think it, again, that's why I think the movie's smart to include them. Like we would notice the missing structure pieces if we had, if we had fewer subplots. Mm -hmm, sure. But like to, to counter that, I feel <laughs> like you could also, you know, use all the subplots maybe more wisely to like, interact with each other more or like to have there be a more cause and effect clearly with like his parenting of uh michael is the son's name right mm -hmm. um like lead more like obviously or clearly to the epiphany that walter has i think it's kind of there but not doesn't connect the dots for us in the same way that like i think you could make some small tweaks to that second half of the second act and i think the ending could hit harder or actually pay off in a surprisingly emotional Christmas movie way in a way that I feel like this movie just like we're saying is kind of like not worrying about trying to accomplish. Like it's more of like, we're going to do all the fun stuff and like show a bunch of different stuff happening. And then at the end she'll sing and he'll be, he'll quit his job. And like, but I think like a great Christmas movie, that's like the inevitable outcome of the sequence of events that has like led to those like catharsis you know, change moments. Um, and it, it's, I guess it's a credit to this movie that it's close enough that I like wished that was there. Like, I think mm -hmm. a, a lesser movie, I'd be like, yeah, of course it's not there. Cause it's not trying to do any of that. It's just going to be like checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. But the first half of this movie was so surprisingly good that it was a little bit of a letdown for me that it didn't have that perfect Christmas movie, like arc that like was like, Oh man, like it inevitably, Walter's going to quit his job because that's always where it was going to land here. When he, like when he put his job in that moment, I'm like, actually the kid can wait like five minutes, like just finish your pitch. <laughs> like, like it didn't feel like that was like, uh, yeah. But he's not going to so, get more missing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he'll still be missing 10 minutes from now. Just do yeah. the pitch. Yeah. Anyway. So, so that's my, that's my feeling is like it, it is. And I think this is once again, a credit to the movie that it like, I think it could have actually, aspired even higher than it aspires um but where it lands is accomplishes all the things that you guys are talking about and is totally fun and great and is a fun christmas movie but like it there's enough talent here that it, it could have been more i think it's interesting yeah as you were talking just there trisha is remembering part of our conversation about avatar and trying to like figure out like what what the hell uh <laughs> <laughs> period <laughs> but like specifically in terms of like like uh we were talking about so many of the characters are kind of like so flat and shallow and like one-dimensional even at times that it's you know it seems like well, why didn't you just go a little bit further and make this like a real character but because it wasn't trying to make them a real character, it also couldn't fail at that. And so it kept right. your right. experience of it at a certain altitude. Right. And I feel like there's a little bit of that happening in Elf. And also uh, just like there's like a certain like silliness and, and whimsy 
like you the world isn't quite the real world like right the mail room scene where he's like break dancing <laughs> right and like the, during the snowball fight where they magically yeah. become friends like you can pan away from will ferrell and pan back and now he has 100 snowballs right. ready and he can right. so like actual gunfire sound effects and yeah. machine yeah. gun arms yeah <laughs> right so like this isn't like the real world and so i think that helps and so it, there's like enough of like what you know you generally want from this kind of story happening and you have the permission of the world not being the real world and it's entertaining enough that like at the end of each two and a half minute scene you've had enough of like the experience you want when watching a movie a good movie that it like makes up for the imperfections along the way i think which is like a really fascinating construction and I think part of the zaniness or the silliness you're pointing to is a little bit of like an SNL like aesthetic sneaking in. Like some of it did feel a little bit like a Will Ferrell SNL sketch, sketch was yeah. like making its way mm -hmm. into a scene, um, which yeah, it's just interesting, interesting to notice that. Speaking of SNL cast members, uh, Chris Farley was the original choice uh, for this movie when it was oh, wow. sold in 1993. And, uh, and yeah, the, the screenwriter was like, I just think that's not the movie I want to make. Not that Chris Farley wouldn't have done a great job at a different kind of movie, but, uh, but yeah, he was, so he actually let the option run out and then it took another 10 years for the movie to get made. So it was, took some, took some snowballs. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think we, you know, we talked about movies that sort of teach you how to watch them in the first 10 minutes, mm -hmm. right? Something like Thor Ragnarok, something like punch drunk love. It's just like, look, this is the movie you're going to get. And I promise you, we will, that will be the movie, right? And Elf, it's like you get this almost trilogy of sequences at the beginning with the storybook opening as told by Papa Elf. And then even just the opening credits, right? Just this sort of like this really kind of heartwarming, lovely kind of, you know, cartoony opening credits. And then just the rest of the North Pole sequence with Leon and, you know, every, every, Mr. Narwhal and everything. Um, and I feel like that's exactly what you're saying, Michael, is this movie is telling you like, look, don't expect like, very deep character, you know, things and flaws and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is just, this isn't that kind of movie. And I do think the movie gets dramatic for lack of a better word, um, almost as much as it can do without feeling like it's not that movie that I was promised at the beginning, if that makes sense. Yeah. I was noticing that this time around that like the emotions aren't interested in going there. Like, you know, when, when Buddy realizes he's a human and he's genuinely really upset about it and, you know, he comes running out of the workshop into the Arctic landscape and the, <laughs> the animals are are there talking to him, the stop motion animals. It's like the the expression that you're seeing on Will's Farrell, Will Ferrell's face is not real emotion, right? It is the facsimile right. It's SNL emotion. sketch emotion. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Um, and I think that what you're pointing out here, Brian, is critical to this, right? Like, that's about the level of emotion we're going to get. Now, the human characters are more grounded in their performance, James Caan especially. And so the moments with him where he is really, you know, seems like he's really struggling about what to do about this impossible situation he's been put in, um, especially towards the end where he's, you know, embarrassed and um, realizing that he's missed out on some time with his kid and like he didn't mean what he said to Buddy, all this stuff. I think a lot of that actually does stray towards 
real emotion. Um, but the movie isn't interested in real emotion, right? It's doing a puppet show for, <laughs> for kids, right? And so it's like the puppets are doing the emotions that you are supposed to feel. It's like signaling, their faces are signaling to you what the emotion is without actually being the emotion. And I think that that is fine. Like, and to your point earlier, Michael, the magical elements are really interestingly incorporated. Like the magic of how the world works and like Buddy's powers within it, they're wild, right? It's like <laughs> he can't keep up with his Etch-A-Sketch quota. He's nowhere even close to what the other elves can do. And yet on Earth, he can like build the entire, you know, Empire State Building out of Legos <laughs> and make an entire, you know, um, just so many snowflakes and paper chains. and Mona Lisa uh, on the Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> yeah. Mona Lisa on the Etch-A-Sketch. I also love that he was using it as like his like notepad. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then he like yeah. shakes it and he's like, yeah. oh, never mind. So many, so many great <laughs> choices. Got a good laugh oh, the yeah. visual gags are amazing. I do want to get to the visual gags, but yeah. Sorry, real quick on that, like, if you guys want to rewatch this movie at some point, this is one of those movies that like rewatching just really pays off because then you start to notice some of those little gags that maybe you didn't mm -hmm. get the first time around. Sorry, Trisha. No, completely. You're right. Anyway, just, yeah, the magic, the way that the magic um, remains in the world after we leave the North Pole, I think is important. Again, going back to the lack of the real emotional core in this movie. It's like, yeah, there isn't going to be real emotions. There's also magic and Santa's sleigh. <laughs> the, you know, the, the whole, the whole ending of it is magic, right? right. Like Santa's sleigh is here and the reindeer are going to fly. If we all believe and sing Santa Claus is coming. We sing this song on repeat over the world. Yes. With that being the climax, you can't have like, a heartfelt scene between James Caan and his son where his son's like, you never spend time with me, dad. Like you, you can't have that scene, you know, from a domestic drama. They're like breaking down in tears and that kind of thing. Yeah. Right, that's you can't just do a that. different no. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Not if you're going to fly away on a sleigh at the end. You know what I, th what I think the part of this movie that I liked so much and that maybe did give me false expectations for the second half were some of those first scenes where he was encountering the other main characters that he's going to meet in New York. So when he first goes to his dad's office, I thought it was such a brilliant, like, escalation scene of like, oh, you're like the, uh, you know, Chris's Graham. Uh, and like, and like, there's, there is a, there's like a, a worldview that can make sense of this. And like, there's a collective understanding in the office of like, this is what this is. And then just like the shattering of that understanding as it becomes clearer and clearer, he's just like insane and like claiming this guy is his dad. And like those, those scenes are played in a way that is like a deeper, I think more adult, more interesting comedy than some of the more, I don't know, like the flatter comedic scenes. And even when he first goes to the mall, and first meets Jovi and is like in that kind of in the North Pole. There, there's there's subtext in her like interaction with him and like her trying to make sense of him. And I think that I was really enjoying that aspect of the movie. And I was thinking it was going for a deeper, more layered, more subtextual comedy than I think what other parts of the movie were signaling to me. So I think part of my like yeah, maybe disappointment came from how good those scenes were and how they were accessing layers of comedy that other sequences weren't interested in accessing. Um, so just realizing that as we talk, mm -hmm. yeah. 
I think there's, I definitely think there's some bumpiness to the way that those scenes switch back and forth is like, yeah. Will Ferrell's performance goes to different places or like, I guess, different styles of comedy um, in different scenes. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Trisha, your summary of it as a puppet show, like I feel like just encapsulates everything (laughs) and, and like. I can't argue with anything now because it's like, no, yeah, that's what it is. It's a puppet show. It doesn't need to be anything more than a puppet show. You go to see a puppet show for certain things. This movie delivers on those 100%. Like, everyone else shut up. (laughs) Like, I I do think it's interesting. Uh, So during the climax, I think, was around the time that I felt the most untethered from it because I realized I didn't know what the movie was about at that point anymore. And it, that's the ending felt the most uh, like manufactured where like if the rest of it did feel, uh, you know, convenient, but and and rushed, but that's fine because I don't really want them to spend time convincing me that Jovi's in love with this crazy person. Like, that's fine. They, <laughs> right. they skate you. This is a movie kiss, romance yeah. through and through, which is fine. That's all you know. That's a puppet show. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting that the ending had to be about, OK, well, so we got to save Christmas. This, this actually isn't about him reconciling with his dad necessarily as the main plot or his dad changing necessarily or the like fixing of the family it's also about you got to help santa save christmas because there's not enough there's a energy shortage energy uh, crisis right an energy (laughs) crisis and so like you also have to like save the entirety of christmas all at once and that felt like it came a little bit out of left field like it gets set up early on but then we don't really talk about that until the third act and so it was just interesting that like how in the third act that felt the most like we got to tick some boxes and like these people really don't like the the central park police uh, <laughs> horse people <laughs> park ranchers this came out in 2003 at the end of the lord of the rings trilogy and there was some like serious oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. there was some serious yes. like john favreau was like i want to do lord of the rings things rings. we got like some forced perspective with the elves yep. in the north yep. pole yeah. got some like table yeah. sitting at the table shots and then it was 100 percent ring rates in oh, that yeah. finale yeah, yeah he just wants fun. to do ring rates yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a few things, um, one of which the puppet show thing falls a little short when you realize that one of the best Christmas movies of all time is The Muppet Christmas Carol, which is a literal puppet show and is surprisingly more dramatic than so many other movies. Um, but, uh, but you know, I was also thinking about um, Paddington. Uh, I, I sort of connected right. Paddington and this mm-hmm. movie when I first watched Paddington. And then I've also talked about Ted Lasso um, in the same conversation, which is that flat character arc where uh, – and actually – in a different way, you guys talked about Gladiator um, with the Tom slash Thomas guys um, and where it's just sort of like <laughs> my refusal to change my point of view is going to bring you bring everyone else sort of like um, b- cause this gravitational pull that like pulls everyone in to, to, to where I am, you know, and I agree with you that the Santa thing in the third act, basically the Rudolph storyline in the third act is definitely the plot is not set up really at all it just sort of comes out of nowhere but thematically i think that's really where the movie when you actually sort of think about what the movie is trying to talk about i think that's where it all comes together because it is buddy in all facets whether it's the world or whether it's santa's sleigh or whether it's the character the immediate characters around him it's him basically 
trying to pull everyone into this place of of joy almost and, and companionship right so you know just like paddington paddington they both have their like little rhyme best way to spread christmas cheers singing loud for all to hear if we're kind of polite the world would be right so i think the interesting thing is that in the first act they're telling buddy like no you're great because you can change the the smoke detector or whatever right and they're and they're trying to be like your your special thing is that you're tall right mm-hmm. and um but then at the end santa is telling him like no you are like you're the the elfiest of all of us right like you mm-hmm. are the most joyous you are the most cheerful so he's saying it's not just because buddy comes from the north pole that he is how he is it's saying even of people in the North Pole, you are the like that beacon of light. You are that shining thing that that makes us all feel better, right? And then so then that's what he is doing to help make the sleigh go, and that's what they're doing to like the world. But that's also how he is changing the immediate characters around him. So you have to do a little work to get there. But I think that like that's kind of where it all thematically ties together for me. Yeah, and I do think the other themes that this movie raises. Um, while they are messier or just like touched on very briefly are, are potentially really interesting, right? You know, in, in sort of any classic fish out of water story, you have a character wondering where he belongs, right? Like Buddy is looking for his family and he assumes that by going to them in New York, that he will automatically fit in and he'll make sense and he'll be a part of who they are. And he discovers that that's not only not the case, Although it takes him a while to fully realize that, that that's not only not the case, but that the whole world is not really suited for him in so many ways. Um, And, you know, at the same time, he feels like he doesn't fit in in the North Pole. So there's there's an interesting like it isn't an arc for Buddy, per se, because I agree that this is one of the greatest examples of a flat character arc ever. But there is a little crisis moment where Buddy walks away and is walking out on the bridge a la It's a Wonderful Life and yeah. thinking about... It's like, this is going to get dark suddenly. I know. Like, yeah. What are you doing on that bridge, oh, Seriously. Um, Michael, It's a Wonderful Life is another Christmas movie. I was going to say, can you um, explain that to yeah. Michael? It's the that one reference? where people fall into the pool and the mm-hmm. gym. I know. I've seen... Is that where you turned it off? Shortly thereafter. <laughs> like, we have to watch It's a Wonderful Life sometimes. <laughs> That's the actual Christmas movie. <laughs> Michael, if you haven't seen The Grinch, it's about a lanky fellow who hates Christmas. I think you'd like it. Yeah. I, it's based on my life story. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Michael's heart grew 10 sizes that day. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so there is a, a moment of crisis for that character where he is really wrestling with, like, maybe I cannot live with this family forever. And what does that mean for me? If I can't go home to the North Pole, I don't belong there. And I've been outcasted from the people I thought would accept me here. What does that mean for me? Um, and again, the movie dwells on it for maybe 10 seconds before it gets to the part that you're talking about, Brian, where then Santa has a brief line where he sort of speaks truth to Buddy about his essence and how valuable it is and what truly makes him special. But again, the movie is not about Buddy's character arc, right? It's about all these other arcs, especially James Kahn's. And there are a, a few moments where he like is is the moment that he's redeemed when he accepts that Buddy is his son and puts on the Santa costume and leads the Central Park Rangers away? Or is it the <laughs> moment where he, like, starts singing and the sleigh flies over him? Like, is it the moment when he quits his job? Is, is it earlier than that? You know, like, there's... 
there's a lot of different things in conversation in, in James Conn's arc about like sort of what he needs to accept in order to be redeemed. But again, all of this is sprinkled in there, like sprinkles on a Christmas cookie that you can just sort <laughs> yeah, of... Yeah. Eat your cookies, watch your puppet show, and <laughs> shut up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's so, yeah, it's interesting because the James Conn arc, like once it gets into plot territory and like, I need to like make a book. And so I was like 100% sure that where it was going was that James Conn's character was going to realize, oh, Buddy's the perfect person to generate ideas for like storybooks. I'm going to exploit him. And so he'll think that I'm his caring father, but really I'm using him. And that would be what the second half was about. And that so it was interesting that didn't go that direction. We got surprised Peter Dinklage, uh, mm -hmm. which was made me want to watch Game of Thrones again. Uh, <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that is a great uh, crisis. <laughs> He's in it for one scene. It's a great crisis scene. Completely, I know. Yeah. 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 No, it's great. But what you're talking about, Treasure, where you know the movie maybe dwells on it only for 10 seconds toward the end, but I think at the beginning of the movie, it does set up Buddy and his arc. Like the, the setup for the protagonist's journey, I think, is really strong. And that it is like he's an outcast here, he's going to be an outcast there. He kind of has no place and he has to find his, his place, but, and he's kind of like crazy enough for this plan to work almost. Like he's also the only person that could do this crazy thing that he's being sent to do. So I feel like the strength of the setup and the positioning of him with the love of Papa Elf, like all of that does, I think, give enough momentum that it's still in your head at the end when Santa drops that bit of knowledge and you're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. It's also kind of like Royal Tenenbaums, I was thinking, as you were speaking earlier, Brian, as far as like Royal comes into this family to try to make things better, doesn't like succeed on purpose, but kind of succeeds accidentally. Mm -hmm. Just like his presence, like the things he actively tries to do often backfires, but like mm. the fallout of those does cause enough dominoes to fall such that things become better. So a little bit of that vibe going on also. Cool. Well, why don't we go to what lessons we're going to be taking away from Elf. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, uh, we were just mentioning it a minute ago with Peter Dinklage, but I think this movie did have, have a great crisis sequence um, with that, the, you know, the, the meeting with Peter Dinklage and the perfect, you know, situation of, you know, exactly what yeah. Buddy is going to say when he walks into that room, <laughs> you know, exactly how poorly it's going to go over. And I think it had, there was a great buildup to that scene because you had the the setup of what's the, what was the name of the character, the Peter Dinklage character, Finch. Miles yeah. Finch. Yeah, you know, the legendary author. If anybody can sell a book, it's him. He's you know it's so hard to get him. He requests a certain kind of car and at a certain temperature. So you have all this great buildup of who's this person going to be. Then you get the revealed as Peter Dinklage, and then you just know exactly how the dominoes are going to fall and it's it's the it's almost like the hitchcock quote about you know you got to know about the bomb under the table or whatever mm -hmm. it made that se sequence so much fun to watch because you know exactly where it's going and exactly like how buddy is going to screw this up and how it's going to be the worst thing ever for walter um and i just i thought that was a really brilliant sequence of setup and payoff um 
so even though I agree with you, Michael, I think that kind of there is a wasted opportunity there with the uh, they do kind of do it at the very end with like Buddy does kind of inspire the children's book at the end, um, even though there wasn't kind of like a cohesive, like Buddy centric story with Walter. This is a good second option where you can have just the most painfully uh, perfect misunderstanding uh, crisis moment with this uh, Buddy character at the end. And so I thought that was very well done and very well paid off. Yeah, and, and I feel like, because I was getting a little uncomfortable during that sequence, but I feel like Peter Dinklage's performance makes it so much more than just like, this is a joke about someone is shorter than the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like the way it's executed and his performance, like like you're saying, like totally steals that whole sequence, makes it about more than just that and, and makes it work. And maybe it harkens back for me to those earlier scenes I was talking about, where it is a little bit more getting into that edgy adult territory of just like the worst social faux pas, the worst, like the most painful, weird situation to possibly find yourself in, you know, with the like, daddy, dad, you know, like, like, you know, just like, this is so uncomfortable and so wrong. And I, I appreciated the movie went there again. Cause I, I find that funny. I like when, when comedy is pushed to those limits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the fact that they did it well, cause you're right. Like there's a lot of ways to do the sequence very wrong in a way that feels like, yeah, it's, it's just not good um but they they managed to pull it off in a way that is like all about the situation and all about buddy um which i thought was perfect right you could write a bunch of poor taste jokes sort of or lines for buddy to be saying but it is genuinely him just being like i'm so excited to you know like like it's just right pure love pure positivity (laughs) and everything like that doesn't even know he's being insulting yeah right (laughs) well actually your lesson is kind of I don't know, in conversation with my lesson a little bit, Alex, which is about a lot of the comedy here and how I think so much of it uh, works because it's not set up and Buddy walks into a room and you never can guess what he will do. And I think that that's like in a lot of these gags that what makes them funny is that they are unguessable. <laughs> like, so, you know, Buddy is sitting in the doctor's office. What is he doing? He's eating cotton balls like <laughs> why who knows why because he's an elf they, they look puffy yeah. they look puffy and fun and he just wants to eat them and then you know james Conn takes one of them away from him and or like tries to take one away and then ooh, it's disappeared oh where is it it's behind your ear i'm gonna eat it again like and it's just it's an unguessable gag you have no idea you're just really along for the physical visual gag of not being able to know what buddy is going to do next now it works because we understand that he's from a fundamentally different place and we understand his excitement for the world and the joy that he has in everything but what he's going to do in any given situation is rarely guessable so buddy's going to encounter an escalator what will he do now, you might guess that he would do this thing or that thing. What he's actually going to do is a split going up the escalator, <laughs> right? It's unguessable. You do, there is no way for you to predict that that is what he is going to do in that scene. Um, similar to, like, even stuff with, like, you know, the the gag where he's running around in the, the revolving door and then he goes and pukes. The puke is very guessable. What he's going to do after that, 
not guessable. <laughs> He's going to get back up and run straight back into the door. It's so unexpected. And I think one of the best gags in this is the Christmas tree where he goes to put the light on the top. Um, <laughs> this is so dumb. It's so dumb, but you don't know what he's going to do. He leaves frame. And you literally cannot guess what he's going to do next. There's no way to predict it. And then what happens is unbelievably funnier than anything you would have guessed anyway. And so I think that so much of the visual gags work here because you have this character with this energy, right? This unpredictable energy to him. The entire mailroom sequence is predicated on this idea. You take Mm. Buddy, you put him in this mailroom, this mailroom of all the mailrooms in the world. And what is going to happen is not predictable, right? You're absolutely right, Alex, in that some of the sequences we need to be able to know and have that sense of dread of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're you're dead on right. But most of the rest of the comedy, because and that scene isn't really being played for comedy, right? It is the crisis point, um, the one where he insults Miles Finch. Right. But the rest of the scenes, if the if the entire point of the scene in the sequence is comedy, then it has to be unpredictable. Um, And the joy comes from what Buddy is going to do that's totally out of left field. The entire, my favorite line in this is probably Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? And it's just, it's because it's so, it happens so quickly and it's so unpredictable. The phone rings and you're expecting Walter to pick it up and before he can even get to it, he dives across the desk and grabs the phone and says that of all things straight into the phone. It's amazing. And and I think all of it works like it's really hard to do that kind of unpredictable physical, like visual comedy really well. This movie nails it at every turn where you just really don't know what Buddy's going to do in a room. And it's just a joy. Whatever he decides to do is a joy. Just just to comment on that, like I, I feel like you're identifying how many different types of comedy are in this movie. Yeah. And, and it does do multiple types of comedy well. And I think and the fact that I was I was clicking into the different modes at different times, like none of them were done poorly. Like like I can get into the Will Ferrell silly random mode in this movie and also get into the dread, awkward social comedy mode at different points. And and, you know, it, it's impressive that in a single movie you can do both those things well, because oftentimes I kind of count on the movie to just get into one lane of comedy and do that well. And I don't expect anything else to be particularly good. Um, but it's impressive this movie can pull off both. It feels like a good like marriage of actor and director there because, yes. you know, physical gags require, you know, that's directing and cinematography and visuals and all these things. But there's also just Will Ferrell being Will Ferrell that like can sustain a scene. If people haven't seen his audition tape for SNL where he oh, just like yeah. his whole thing is just like, I'm going to be a cat. And then he just is a cat. And it's <laughs> the funniest, like specifically. <laughs> Like like a very clearly highly paid executive who on his spare time plays with a cat toy. <laughs> that's that's the entirety of the gag. Who momentarily will stand up and go to his intercom and like reschedule the meeting and then go back to. <laughs> I I still remember that part. Well, yeah. it, it, it shows how like in a comedy like this, like it's all on that leading actor, yes. like yeah. like, yeah. like their soul, like their embodied like comedy is everything and it's like it's a whole different movie with a different actor yeah yeah this is actually a great example of a movie where the script 
was a really good start. And then Favreau came in and he did the Rankin Bass stuff. He did some of the, the, the casting that you wouldn't expect. And then Will Ferrell, you know, then improvised a lot of this stuff. Like the New York montage, uh, when he first gets to New York is they literally just went out with the camera and just filmed him running around the old guy in the red jogging suit. He was just there. Oh, like he was great. just jogging and Will Ferrell just <laughs> ran him down. Um, so yeah, like like that. It's a really cool example of a movie that just kind of got like better and better with each ingredient that was added into the um, Christmas soup Stoop. horse. What's a Christmas horse? Yes, Santa's <laughs> bag of gifts. Well, and to exactly and to exactly you know your point, and it's like not only was was the writing, you know, of what Buddy was going to do unpredictable. The actual improv was unpredictable as well, right? Will Ferrell was in there, was out there following his impulses, jump, like leapfrogging across the, like across the the crosswalk. (laughs) The other ones don't stop. Why would you ever cross a crosswalk (laughs) that way? Like a jumping frog, (laughs) but that's how Buddy is going to try to do it. Again, the unpredictable (laughs) factor is so fun. I think that was just like, there were moments where I was like, but why is he like, like the other elves aren't like the, the other elves right. are more worldly than he is. Oh, like yeah. what is it's it? Just Will Ferrell. It's just Will Ferrell. Yeah. I'm going to watch Will Ferrell do things. Yeah. It's a puppet show. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, what's your lesson? Um, yeah. When we talked about the sort of the family adult kid tone balance that this movie strikes, you know, and I, I really appreciate that. I think it found, on this sort of spectrum of like G super, like only for kids kind of thing and Pulp Fiction, right? Like it found this, this like, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the range. Pulp Fiction for kids. Um, uh, you know, it, it found this, this range and it just said like, we are going to stay within this, but we are going to kind of push the edges. So we are going to get really, kind of cartoony and heartwarming and uh, that was heartwarming, not heartwarming. Um, and like it's kind of slapsticky and stuff, but we're also gonna, you know, say up yours or we're going to say they're pissed about this. So we're going to, you know, like there's sort of, it's not trying to be too far in any direction. And that kind of gives it a bit of dimensionality. And I think it also gives it, um, it makes it feel appropriate for all, I would say most ages, maybe not all ages, maybe you wouldn't want like a four-year-old to watch this or something, but I feel like a, a pretty much any, any kid past the age of like, I don't know, six or seven is, is totally fine watching this movie. Um, and, but I just really appreciate that it doesn't feel like, you know, we've talked about with Star Wars. Sometimes it's like this scene is for adults, but this scene is for kids. And it's like, but it's in the same movie or show about Boba Fett. Um, and <laughs> like, but this movie feels like it's all, all those, it's consistent in what it does, but what it does feels universal. It feels like it, it has a, a wide range of audiences. And that bridge, the scene on the bridge, I remember that scene being in Save the Cat when he is actually talking about the crisis point of a movie or bad guys close in or whatever he calls it. Um, But like that is an image where if you are a kid, you look at that and you're like, he's sad. Right. And if you are an adult, you're like, whoa, what's going on here? Is he you know, what's he going to do? And if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, then it gives it this whole other layer. But like. The movie doesn't have to do anything more than just show you that one image. And that sort of communicates whatever it needs to communicate to anybody. 
I think I may have mentioned this before, uh, maybe on our Inside Out podcast or something, but uh, another family movie from 2003 was The Cat in the Hat, starring Mike Myers. And I use this as an example of how not to make a movie <laughs> that that's trying to appeal to all audiences, um, because there's a conversation with Dakota Fanning, who is the only reason to see this movie, where Cat in the Hat gets out his car and he says... Here she is, the super luxurious omnidirectional watchamajigger, or S-L-O-W for short. And she says, slow? And he says, yeah, S-L-O-W. It's better than the last thing we had, super hydraulic instantaneous transporter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that joke either means nothing to kids, <laughs> or they do figure it out, in which case it's not appropriate to be in that movie. Right. You know, right. so it's sort of like, again, in that range on the spectrum, it's like, Oh, here's a joke, like specifically for adults. That's like really kind of not at all in the spirit of, of this, of this thing. Right. Um, so I think that elf really navigates that well. And John Favreau said he really wanted to make something that was kind of a true family movie. He wanted to make something that was like not set in time and not set in age, I think. And I think he just nailed that. And I think that that's something to think about if you're trying to make something that is sort of for a wider audience. It felt surprisingly timeless. Like, I don't know if it's mm -hmm. timeless, timeless, but it more than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was right. going to be very much a 2003, like stuck in a moment movie. And it was not that in the way that I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good point. And that is a hard target to hit, like to even be aware of that as a target takes a lot of awareness and then to hit it. I was thinking about that with like the Zoe Deschanel character also, where like she in some ways is presented like when you first see her i was like oh okay this is like a character she's like a new york somebody and she's kind of poor like what's her like she's got a whole like story going on over here but then we never touch on it like that's not part of the plot at all of like what is her life what is her backstory Why, they shut yeah, off her water they shut off her water we see a glimpse of her like apartment it's not like great looking but like her Somehow the reporter has more backstory than Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much going on in her one. So great. much happening with the reporter. <laughs> I wrote a note of like this reporter actor is like she's doing a lot of work right now. Yeah. Like this is yeah. Anyway, but it, it, I feel like it, it's doing that thing that you're talking about of like I can infer as an adult what this Zoe Deschanel character might be in three dimensions in the real world. And if I'm a child, I don't need to know any of that. I just need to know that she's afraid of singing in public. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a cool, it's a good point. So I think what was striking to me is how we've already touched on this, but like that a, a scene can not necessarily be earned in terms of like the dominoes all fell perfectly to make everything happen. So I'm thinking about the the ice skating sequence when they're on their date and the kiss that happens. And the whole time I'm just like, why is she with this person? I don't understand. He's kind of a crazy person. Why'd you say yes? Why is she okay kissing him? I don't understand any of this. But like, ultimately I was like, I don't really care. And I don't want the movie to try to bother explaining to me why this makes sense or it's possible. Like you showed me a thing that was entertaining. And by the end of this scene, things had changed. And that's all that matters. And the plot is moving forward. And so, uh, yeah, it's just a reminder that like sometimes all you need is for a scene to be entertaining and for it to make the plot move forward. 
and short and sweet and make the plot move forward uh, is good, and I like it. There's no subtext to any nope. of the things that I'm talking about here. <laughs> join us on Patreon to join our Discord. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I get it. Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah, yeah. Michael's talking about elf and or something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fill in the blank. <laughs> well, why don't we go around and say what else we have been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Sure. So I actually, I have like a combination of what I've been reading slash what I've been watching. So I have been having a wonderful holiday season, uh, spending some time reading screenplays for coverage. Uh, so for those that might not know, I, when I have the time to do it, which I, I often do around the holidays since all of Hollywood shuts down for like two and a half months. Um, I, I like taking scripts and reading them and doing coverage uh, for clients. So I do that as like sort of a freelance little side business, um, mostly because I really like doing it. So I tweeted about that recently and I got a bunch of scripts and as always, they exceed my expectations. Uh, I get scripts from, from folks all over the world and all over the map and different places in their screenwriting careers. And I enjoy reading every one of them. Um, it's, it's really a, I don't know. I feel lucky to kind of get to do that as my side hustle. But after I I did that tweet and, and I was covering for some clients, I also got a request from a client who asked me to watch a completed movie of his, a feature film, and come on to his podcast where he runs. So it's called the Indie, I-N-D-I-E-E-Y-E. So the Indie Eye Film Awards. Yeah. So the Indie Eye Film uh, Festival is an online-only festival where people can submit their shorts and features. And one of the things that the festival offers to people who submit is feedback. And they do that by way of their podcast. So they take movies and watch them, and then they review them on their show and discuss um, basically everything, like sort of, yeah live feedback or I guess live on mic coverage for people who submit. And so the organizer of the festival asked me onto the show to uh, give coverage on his own feature film. So uh, the filmmaker is named Matt Gray and his feature film is called Madison Baker Was Here. So I got to watch that feature film and then go on the Indie Eye film podcast and do some on mic coverage. So it was a lot of fun. Um, I am a very nice person. As If you listen, <laughs> the episode is out now. Uh, he was, he was very gracious and he was like, you know, I do this for, for other folks and I want to show that I can take feedback as well. And I'd love for you to be as brutal as you want to be. Um, and I was not brutal. Uh, I was very nice about it. Um, but you know, that's a, that's a part of the writing process that we all go through. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to get to be a part of that on the NDI film podcast. And that episode should be out now. Very cool. Nice. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. I really like that idea of like live coverage, like constructive feedback and podcast for like, it almost reminds me of like Esther Perel does like a podcast where she does like live, like couples counseling basically as a thing. And I feel like that's doing that. I think is a is a cool it's like, like modeling to, to yeah like yeah. for other writers of like here's how you can do this process and also you're hearing the feedback of it all 
all at once. I think it's a really cool idea for a podcast. It sounds really fun. Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I watched a really great documentary on HBO Max called Navalny. Um, it's about Alexei Navalny, who's the opposition uh, leader in Russia. And it's a really riveting documentary about the assassination attempt on him and his like, return to Russia afterwards. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty remarkable documentary. It's, you know, Russia's crazy, man. <laughs> like it's <laughs> crazy story. And it's, and it's, you know, the, the filmmaker had total access to him and his family during that time. And it's just really, really well done documentary. So can't recommend it enough. Navalny on HBO Max. It is a very riveting, entertaining documentary. Fascinating. That sounds, yeah, intense. Cool. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, so a few months ago, I, I talked about Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, uh, which is a movie that I loved. Um, and I think that movie, the, the, the sort of plot summary could be a, it's a 2022 film about a sort of uptight British woman who employs a handsome man to fulfill her desires. And then the majority of the movie is the two of them in a hotel room getting to know each other and their backstories. Um, so I watched another movie with the exact same tagline, except magic. Um, because he's a genie and the movie was 3000 years, 3, of, years longing. of longing, <laughs> the, the new, the new George Miller movie, uh, which I was very surprised to be like, this is kind of all the same like plot beats, but genie magic, all sorts of CG, like lots of big things. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's uh, Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba and she basically, he's a genie and he, she has three wishes, but then the movie is not like her making crazy wishes and seeing what happens like that kind of thing. It's not a Latin for adults kind of thing. Um, and, uh, sorry, he's a gin. I said genie. Um, but, uh, it was a fun movie. Like I, I, I thought I kind of get why the reviews have been sort of so, so, but I just thought it was a really entertaining ride, you know, and, and talking about things that are, maybe their primary function is to entertain. I think that I just had a really good time watching it. So I recommend checking it out um, for anyone. Nice. That's, that's fun. Awesome. So I talked about the white Lotus very recently and now and like season two came out like a week later. And so I'm just here to say season two is also very compelling. And I think a really interesting work to study as a writer. And so White Lotus. It's this anthology series where there have only been two seasons and as of recording now, season two isn't even done, but it's basically the White Lotus is like a big hotel for fancy, super rich people. And so each season is kind of following this ensemble cast of rich people that are living the life, but also have these deep, crazy problems. And then the other characters around them that come into collision with them. And it's it's just a, such a specific blend of like dark humor, but also drama and also just like fun entertainment. The like the way the sense of place. So like the first season is set in Hawaii and there's just like gorgeous cinematography constantly. This season is set in Sicily. There's gorgeous cinematography constantly, but it's also used via editing to create mood and juxtaposition and symbolism. So you're just always kind of 
unsettled and don't know what's going on. Each season of these two seasons has begun with a signal that someone or someones will end up dead by the end of the season. So there's like a soft like murder mystery thing that's like dropped at the beginning and then you kind of never think about it until those like quiet moments where you're like, oh wait, right, and someone's gonna die somehow. And so that's happening while it's also, I feel like pretty deftly exploring the social cultural moment of today in a way that doesn't feel clunky you know like this season there's a couple like young like gen z or people and it's definitely like exploring wokeness and the goods and the bads of of every level of all of it every character i feel like in one scene you're like i hate that character i do not like them at all that they are bad and then the next scene you're like oh, i'm totally rooting for this character like they have a really good point so it's just really well designed and executed. And I was happy to see that season two is also very good, just like season one. So The White Lotus season two is probably going to be done by the time this episode comes out. It will be. Yeah, it's only one more. Intensive. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting thing to study. What Both White Lotus and I would say Queen's Gambit of this kind of it's almost cheating where it's just like it's the Hitchcock bomb under the table, but the bomb doesn't even need to go off necessarily. You're just like, well, I have to keep watching to see what the hell's going to happen with the bomb on the table. Right. And, and I feel like white Lotus is just this like absolute constant cascade of like dr dramatic questions where you're like, I don't even know if I care about any of these characters, but I have to know if that thing happens to that person or not, you know, and then it just keeps you watching. It's really fascinating. God, yeah. I, I got to keep watching the, you know, the first episode of the first season. I feel like doesn't communicate a lot of the things you guys are saying. Like it just kind of like ended. And I was like, well, that's not, I don't need to keep watching this, but mm. everybody keeps yelling at me to watch it and say season two is <laughs> even better. And so, okay, I, I will. <laughs> <laughs> there's just like good performances like yeah. Aubrey Plaza. There's a few moments this season where she oh, captures I mean, like Aubrey Plaza. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's great. And yeah. There's like a very specific emotion and mental state that she's having to perform and it's like mm -hmm. pitch perfect. And I'm like, how did you do that? Anyway, so White Lotus season two and one watch. Excellent. Uh, OK, well, this has been our conversation about Elf. I have now seen it. I understand the magic. It made me want to go watch Zoolander because I think that's my favorite Will Ferrell performance besides the Blue Oyster <laughs> Cult sketch on SNL, which is the best thing ever made. But yes, this was a fun, delightful little holiday cheer moment. I hope everyone has a very happy holidays from all of us here at Beyond the Screenplay. And a reminder that our next episode is going to be on Glass Onion, Knives Out 2. I'm Yay. very excited to see it and talk about it. And there's also going to be Avatar Way of Water. There's it's gonna be there's gonna be some fun conversations. There's gonna be some coming. good episodes. Oh, yeah. I can yeah. feel it. Yeah. yeah. It's gonna be good. <laughs> wanna say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes and get lots of fun perks, then head over to our Beyond Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Have a very happy holidays, and we will see you in the next episode for Glass Onion. Bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. That's what I was going to do. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>